Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Casino Royale, starring Daniel Craig, Ava Green, Mads Mikkelsen, Judy Dench, and directed by Martin Campbell. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, coming from the Podcast Royale. Do I look like I give a damn? <laughs> well, we're back to Casino Royale. Let's cue the theme music. I think it's at the end credits of every podcast in this series, actually. <laughs> I think we have introduced more people to that piece of music than Casino Royale have introduced to that piece of music. Oh, wait, you mean the modern one. We're not going to re-review the Peter Sellers one? Thankfully, never. (laughs) Yeah, I'm never going to watch that one again. Yeah, never. Well, this is a long time coming for us. I know the three of us are looking forward to reviewing this movie, but a long time coming for the producers of James Bond. They've been wanting this like the holy grail for them of James Bond stories. And as luck would have it, they finally got the rights in the late 90s, and they put out this film, Casino Royale, in 2006 to finally be able to produce every James Bond Ian Fleming book that was published. Well, it wasn't necessarily luck. It was more they had to sell their soul as... In exchange for the rights to Casino Royale and the rights to Thunderball to stop that parallel doppelganger James Bond series, they gave up Spider-Man, which Sony has turned into a very lucrative franchise. While MGM, the reason that it's taken us so long to get to James Bond is because they've had tons of money trouble. Spider-Man money might have helped that. Indeed. So that was exactly what happened. McClory reared his head again in the late 90s trying to get another version of Thunderball put out there with rumored Timothy Dalton was going to be the star of it. But they got Sony behind it this time. As much as I like Dalton, I would not want to see that movie. I agree. It was called Warhead 2000. Go on the internet, folks, and read all about it if you want to. Sony was behind it, and so Eon sued Sony, and as Arnie said, their settlement was, we get the rights to the James Bond stuff, but they took Spider-Man. And I gotta tell you guys, what was really funny to me was, when I was reading all about that, they had the rights. They could have done it instead of doing Die Another Day, but they went with Die Another Day instead, and then they did Casino Royale. And for people who really wanted to do Casino Royale for 40-whatever years, the fact that they sat on it for a couple years surprised me. What's really interesting about this whole thing is the last bit of trivia behind it. We talked last time about that solo movie for Jinx. Well, the origin story movie they were writing for Jinx convinced them that they should shelve that and do the origin story of Bond with Casino Royale. I think Catwoman would have done just as much convincing. I mean, (laughs) really, at that point, nobody wanted to see Halle Berry lead an action movie. And then, of course, James Bond was third and fourth in line with the recent bits of rebooting with Batman and the Star Wars prequels. As we said before, 
before James Bond jumping on trends, well, they did it again by rebooting the series here. Yeah, but it's kind of a shocker because I remember actually being excited for this movie because I thought the next Bond would be another Pierce Brosnan one. And then it was announced that he was fired, he wanted too much money, and then, oh my god, did the internet nerd rage explode all over my screen. No James Blonde! Yes. Yes, we think we all remember that, that Daniel Craig was not immediately accepted. It was like Michael Keaton Batman kind of hate. And he's short. He's blonde. His looks are strange. I think that he just isn't Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan is the waxwork of James Bond. He's the opposite of what Daniel Craig is bringing. But you know what? That was the selling point for me. I actually knew Daniel Craig from a lot of his British dramatic work. He did a lot of unmemorable movies where he made strong impressions. The Mother, he was in Elizabeth, Love is the Devil. Kid in King Arthur's Court. I didn't see that. But I'm telling you, I saw the British ones. Whatever he did in America with Tomb Raider or all that I skipped but he really really struck me as an incredible actor in the stuff that I saw he's got those intense blue eyes I'm just like yeah this guy will be good this guy will bring the heat he will be a really tough Sean Connery-esque Bond again and that was encouraging for me it was the reason I wanted to see Bond again and I'd seen a bunch of movies with him in it, and he made zero impression on me. I saw the ones that Stuart probably didn't, because they were American. Tomb Raider, Road to Perdition, you probably saw Munich. But I didn't have any clue who this guy was. I still could only remember him in one of those three movies when I strained my brain to think who did he play. I'd have to go back and see the movies again to go, that's Daniel Craig. What I do know is before this movie was even out, they were selling him as the star of the next great franchise, The Golden Compass with Nicole Kidman. So they were setting him up for great things and... He's now James Bond. We've reviewed him before. We talked about Cowboys versus Aliens. To me, this guy is James Bond. You know, I did see him in Road to Perdition, and he made an incredible impression on me because of those steel blue eyes. I do agree with both of you, though. I don't really remember him very much in Munich or the Kidding King Arthur's Court, which I have seen. But I did remember him big time in a 2004 movie called Layer Cake, which the producers saw that and also thought of him for Bond after seeing that movie. And I can't recommend that one enough. If you guys haven't seen that, check that out. It's great. And he is really good in it. Well, I remember the hate, and I remember sitting there quietly shaking my head going, you will all be proven wrong. This will all go away the second we see this. I was confident that we were going to get a great Bond movie. And I state, again, this is the first time that I've wanted to see a Bond movie in theaters, probably since A View to a Kill. You know, I had gone with my mother out of obligation, but this one I didn't even see with her. I saw this opening weekend. I could not wait to see what they were going to do with it. It felt like they could do with this franchise what Nolan had done with Batman. That's the way I really was thinking about this was that reboots are better than remakes because it gives you a chance to infuse the pulpy source material with really dramatic gravitas. And I was convinced they were going to do that here. I didn't see this in theaters. I wanted to, especially when the buzz came about it and everybody was talking about it, but it was one that I just never got to until it was out on Blu-ray and I saw it there. But as far as a reboot, I mean, everybody was saying it was a reboot, but I wasn't quite sure how much of a reboot it was. And the thing that throws that rent 
wrenching for me is Judy Dench. And this is where my theory I had as a teenager, oh, it's just a bunch of different people and they're taking the name James Bond when they take the title 007 started to really percolate because how could Judy Dench still be M in a rebooted universe? True. And I didn't really pay attention to the Brosnan ones. I'd forgotten she was involved in them. She fits right along nicely with what they're doing here. But you're right. It's a disconnect because this isn't a continuation of what they've done before. This is hitting the reset button. It's starting over. They also bring back Martin Campbell, the guy that helped Pierce Brosnan get into the tux in GoldenEye. This is a movie he made in between Zorro 2 and Green Lantern. Yeah, I'm not sure that he was really on a high there in his career, but for whatever reason, they decided that he was the guy to get this franchise rebooted. His reboot of Zorro, though, the first Zorro movie, was phenomenal. So he had a penchant for doing that sort of thing with Goldeneye and with Zorro. I think bringing him back for this one was a very good choice because of the success he had with Goldeneye. That had to be on their minds. They did want him to come back for Brosnan 2, but much like he wouldn't come back for Quantum of Solace next, he doesn't want to do the same thing twice in a row. Well, that's good because I don't want to see Green Lantern 2. But you will. And the thing that gets me is this guy can really do action. I mean, Goldeneye, we all complimented the action. The Mask of Zorro, I really enjoy all the sword fighting in that, as well as the humor. Never really thought about it before, but that is kind of a Hispanic James Bond kind of film with the one-liners, the sexiness, and the action. But bringing him back for a harder, darker Bond, I would have been skeptical if I was analyzing this pre-release. Well, I was severely in the camp of, let's just see how he does. Let's just see how this thing plays out. At this point, I was already rejecting the hype machine of Hollywood pretty well for a few years at this point. And since I love James Bond so much, I was trying to go in with as open mind as possible, as I always try to do with these movies. So I was really trying to avoid all the skepticism, all that kind of stuff about the wrong Bond, the wrong director, anything at all. Because I wanted to say, you know what? Let's see what they can bring. Let's see what they can do and we'll go from there. And if I dislike it afterwards, let's go to town. It'll be Superman Returns. It'd be exactly. I stayed open for that one, too. And that's what I was trying to go into. So perhaps a plot summary can get us into this review proper. James Bond was just granted his double O status, which is assigned for completing two assassinations for Her Majesty, when he's assigned to capture a bomb maker in Madagascar. In the chase, Bond kills the bomb maker and is chastised by his boss, M, who wanted the bomb maker captured, not killed. But through the man's mobile phone, Bond traces the maker to terrorist financer Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre has been short-selling stocks of successful companies, companies that Le Chiffre himself has his bomb makers terrorize, guaranteeing their stocks will fall and Le Chiffre will make a fortune. But Bond interrupts one of Le Chiffre's plans to blow up a new aircraft, and when the stocks don't fall, Le Chiffre loses a fortune. But Le Chiffre needs to recoup the money to pay his terrorist employers. To get it, Le Chiffre enters a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale. Emma signs Bond, the best poker player on her force, to go and beat him. With Le Chiffre beaten, he will need asylum and give MI6 the information on his bosses. Bond is staked in the game by Vesper Lind, a treasury agent. But when Bond loses his first 10 million, Vesper refuses to give him any more of Her Majesty's money to lose. But another player is also after Le Chiffre, CIA agent Felix Leiter, who is losing badly. The CIA stake Bond in the game, and Le Chiffre's men try to poison Bond. There's an action scene virtually between every hand, but in the end, Bond does go all in and beat Le Chiffre. After losing, Le Chiffre abducts Vesper and uses her as bait to capture Bond, who Le Chiffre tortures for the password to the bank account that has the winnings. While torturing Bond, though, Le Chiffre's employers come in and shoot the man dead, leaving Bond and Vesper alive. 
in love, Bond and Vesper enjoy a romantic weekend, but when Vesper goes to withdraw the money, Bond realizes she's a double agent working for Le Chiffre's bosses to take the money from him. Bond goes after her, but she kills herself while a man named Mr. White walks away with the dough. Bond rejoins MI6 and finds out Vesper herself was being blackmailed. She had a boyfriend kidnapped by the shadow organization behind Le Chiffre, but Vesper had made an arrangement with her bosses to spare Bond's life, and she had sacrificed herself for him. Determined to find out who was behind her death, Bond tracks down and captures Mr. White, introducing himself for the first time as Bond James Bond as credits roll. Now that is, of course, a simplified plot summary. Hopefully you've watched the movie. I know most of our listeners do watch the movies before we spoil the hell out of them anyway. So you know there's a lot more details that I am positive we're going to get into eventually because I almost didn't get a chance to watch this movie. Turn it on. I rented it on Apple TV. I'm not the fan. I don't own these discs. And I swore to God up and down my Apple TV was broken because the damn thing's playing in black and white. Why do I not have color? I'm not going to watch this whole thing in black and white. I'm calling Apple on the phone. I'm very upset. (laughs) Daniel Craig is ready to sell you a Vio, but I had the same experience, Arnie. I had forgotten from my theatrical viewing that they'd made this creative little license with the cinematography here in the opening. I'm not sure why. James Bond has never been in black and white other than that TV movie, but yeah, it's a stylish way of getting us into a dark, gritty world. It's exactly what it was. They wanted to do an old noir feel to it because it was a flashback scene. It was the start. And they wanted to also, if you notice, the scene when he's in the office with the guy talking is very clean. When he's in the bathroom fighting intercut, it's very grainy and dirty. And that was also intentional. And I remember in the movie theater, after the lion roars and the Columbia Pictures logo comes on, I don't get my gun barrel sequence. I don't get the little dots running across the screen. All of a sudden, I see a black and white building. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> What's going on here? And then, of course, they start the scene, and I'm like, okay, I'll go along with it. What do you got? So you were okay with it, because I knew that the Bond fans were upset enough over the hair color that I figured no gun barrel, and people were just storming out. Well, let me tell you how it is, and I'm going to jump ahead a tiny bit. At the end of the scene, Bond shoots the screen, the blood comes down. And we were told ahead of time, the only thing I really knew was this is the beginning of Bond. This is the start of Bond. And when they did the little bit of a gun barrel at the end of the scene before the credit sequence began, I came to the epiphany of, okay, we're going to see how all the pieces come together. He's not James Bond yet. And that's me in the theater in 2006 telling myself that. And I was watching the movie. I kind of felt that's what the movie was about. And sure enough, I feel that's what the movie is about. They show us how Bond becomes James Bond. His name is James Bond, but here we're watching him become him. And so we don't get a traditional gun barrel sequence because of that reason. I had never known why he was called 007. I thought it was an arbitrary number. This scene actually tells you what the 00 signifies. It's a kill. You kill one person, it's a no. You kill another person, it's a no. You become a 00 agent. We see him kill two people and actually get his clout. Before he pulls the trigger, he isn't our James Bond. So I think you're right. I think that this scene lets us know this is a voyage. This is a journey into becoming what we've already taken for granted as James Bond. Now, I was curious, was that something made up for this movie? Or was that something from Fleming that two kills is a double O? Fleming. It's in Casino Royale, the book. And I assume since Fleming has a lot of knowledge about British intelligence, that's probably coming from real life. 
the scene in the bathroom when he kills that man brutally, and he had to really work for that first kill, they cut out some stuff of, they're at a cricket match. That's a bathroom at a cricket match. And I watched the deleted scenes on my three-disc special edition here, the collector's edition of, of the movie. And I love the extra scene of the cricket stuff, but they were right to cut it out. Because how jarring was it when you have this calm conversation with a guy pointing a gun at Bond, and all of a sudden intercut with this jarring, brutal fight in the bathroom, which I find that so effective. Well, the movie hops around a lot here. I think that this Bond might be one that utilizes more international locations than any other. I mean, we quickly shuttle around here. I think they need to be selective about what we show because it could be confusing. I mean, I don't really know who this agent is that he's killing in Prague. I don't know who his friend is in the bathroom or why. It's really not that important. The takeaway from this is by doing these kills, he's now James Bond. We can get on with the mission starting in Uganda. And before Uganda, though, we get something else a little different. Opening credits, and I was shocked there were no writhing women in it. <laughs> None. <laughs> In the tradition of keeping with doing something different, they do something that I think honors the past. It's computer graphics. It has a very Bondian feel to it. But yeah, it doesn't feel so flagrantly TNA. It doesn't feel so campy. There are no naked ladies participating in this computer graphic suits of cards and Bond is using them to kill. It's flashy. I like it. You know, I like this opening credit sequence. I love it. I think it's great. I love the imagery. I love how it tells us that Bond earned his double O status eventually through it. I love the glance of Vesper's face. You could tell it's Daniel Craig. They used him as the model for it. That was pretty cool. I liked how things broke into spades and hearts and diamonds. But it's really kind of fun for me to watch this credit sequence. I can't remember the last time I was as riveted watching a James Bond credit sequence as this one. This one got me hook, line, and sinker. And a big reason for that is the song we talked about in George Lazenby when he came in that he made a nod to the audience broke the fourth wall well the song is kind of breaking the fourth wall you know my name is a wonderful little nod to different bond different way to doing things not actually saying what he means and it's all about james bond this song it's great and they don't even use the titles casino royale in the song either which is rare i loved the idea of what they were doing with the song i love the imagery and i love the riff uh, a big winner for me I appreciate the fact that for a harder, grittier Bond, they're going with something really rockin'. And I flaunted the flannel back in the 90s. I've seen Soundgarden in concert. I liked Chris Cornell back in the day. I do think he's a bit over the hill here. I wish I could share your enthusiasm for this song. I think it's kind of a muddle. I'm kind of eh on this song. I don't think Chris sounds particularly in good a voice. I think he's a little raspy where he used to be able to hit those notes. I also think that the transitions here, it's not a great rock song to me. I wanted it to be a little bit more kick-ass than it was, but I do agree. The riff's fun. The da 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 ba ba In those little moments, I kind of go with it. I just, eh, this one's kind of on the middle, heading towards the bottom of the list for me. And for me, I love the opening credits with the deck of cards. For those who've been listening to our entire James Bond series and remember the first Casino Royale podcast, that's the only James Bond book I ever read. I remember it pretty well. I remember it well enough to know they weren't playing poker, but playing Baccarat. And... So when I'm seeing these opening credits, knowing what I know about the plot going in, I just love the way they use the classic Hoyle card deck iconography there. And the song, I actually like the song. I'm with Brock on this one. I think it's a pretty decent rock song. And what I like about it is... It really is kind of like an epitome of the movie itself in that it's certainly with that 
chorus that Stuart just sung has some James Bond elements to it, but yet it sounds nothing like a James Bond song. You've ranked it. I have a hard time putting it in among the previous songs we've heard. It just is so different from every other song. And I'm surprised you rank it so low, Stuart, because you're repeatedly saying you like it when they do something new and something different and something edgy with these songs. We've certainly never had a Bond song like this. I agree, and I wish I could like it more. It sounds like it belongs on an Audio Slave album. And P.S., I didn't like Audio Slave, but <laughs> that's just where I'm at with it. I just don't think it was as good a rock in time. We'll continue this conversation next Friday when we get to the next theme. But I want a little more rock with this opener than they're giving me. So after the credits, we see Bond chasing a bomb maker, and this is a completely separate mission, right? This has absolutely no relation to the double agent who was selling secrets, who he killed pre-credits to get his status. It does two things, I guess. It not only gives him his double O status, but it shows that there are spies within MI6 that we shouldn't trust our friends, but it has nothing to do with where Bond goes next. Is that right? From my understanding, it's nothing to do with the opening. It's Bond is now a double O. Here he's on a double O mission. Now, this is the one thing that I couldn't wait to relive from Casino Royale. I haven't seen it since theaters November 2006, but from my recollection, this was one of the most impressive action scenes I have ever seen, and it did not disappoint on second viewing. This scene is gold. This is absolutely, bar none, top five, if not top three James Bond action scenes for me. What a great way to open this movie, this free-running sequence with this little guy jumping like a frog all over the place and James Bond chasing him. This thing is incredibly fun to watch. I can't tell you how many times I've watched this thing and I never get tired of watching it. And it's all real. That's the key. They actually got this quote-unquote actor playing Malaka, the bomb maker, is actually one of the pioneers of parkour. He is the guy who said, I don't know how you come to that inspiration. I don't know how you go, hey, I'm going to run along the rooftops and just jump and jump and jump and not die. But this is the guy that really turned it into a worldwide sensation. And, I mean, he's not on wires here. They're not pulling punches. This is real stuff. And you can tell that. Action movies had been going this way. I'll go ahead and raise the other B word that we knew we were going to get to at some point with this movie. Born Identity had already sort of beaten them to this punch. People were demanding in this decade that their spy fights look a little bit more tactile. And so Bond was trying to keep up and really give a fight scene that feels alive and not CGI like Die Another Day. They caught a lot of flack for the CGI and Die Another Day. I'm one of those people who gave them a lot of flack for it. So this first action scene without the CGI, bravo. Now, just for the record, though, I did watch a lot of special features on this free-running thing and this whole sequence. In a couple of the jumps, for safety's sake, because it is bigger jumps than this man is used to, they did have safety tethers just in case. I knew it. I knew it. There had to be. But they did do all the jumps themselves. One of the things that I thought while seeing this was just how we have seen such an evolution of special effects. I recommend everyone go on this Bond journey that we've gone on just to see how movies have gone from rear projection to blue screen to green screen to CGI to this where, yeah, you just digitally remove harnesses and digitally tweak. But listen, I just want to be very clear on this, though, Arnie. It's nothing more than a safety harness just in case. It's not like the man didn't do a lot of the jumps. The thing through the top of the door, that little tiny hole, and then Bond runs through the wall, that's all real. The guy jumps off the crane. 
it's remarkable. So it really is this guy running and jumping and doing all those things. But the bigger, taller jumps, just because of insurance reasons and things, they had a tether on him. But don't knock the guy for being safe. It really is him doing all this stuff. It's amazing. Yeah, insurance made him do this. He'd probably do it for free just for the inspiration. Yeah, I'm not saying the scene is not incredibly fun. It is. And I'm not saying he's not incredibly talented. He is. And I didn't know what parkour was, honestly, by name, until we did our freaking Punisher retrospective. And then I learned that this movie is the one that pioneered it. So I was waiting to see the parkour scene that caused so many derivatives that we've already covered. No, it's incredible. It also is funny because it kind of takes Daniel Craig back to his Tomb Raider roots. All I could think of this entire scene was it's a video game. It's a platform jump. Gotta make this jump. Gotta catch this guy. It really felt like a video game, but an incredibly fun one. It's just a great opening sequence. I just kind of wish I knew why he was chasing the guy. I don't agree with the video game thing. I mean, if it's a video game thing, then every action scene is a video game thing. A video game action scene, to me, means artificial world where someone's running around on a blue screen and their wire foo gets them to the next thing. Here, they have different movements. What's so impressive to me is the way Mulaka has a style, almost like choreography. He moves like a panther sometimes. His leaps have an entirely different feel than Bond's leaps, and it sets them up as characters. One guy is graceful, a natural, an animal and his habitat. The other is rough, not graceful, doesn't have any of it, but he gets the job done. And watching these two fight their way across the construction site to the embassy, it is. It's just one of the best action scenes I've ever seen. Not just because it's got cool stunts, because it's just told so well and says so much within it. I still say it's video game, though. I mean, I'm not saying it looks CGI. What I'm saying is, in a video game like Tomb Raider, you're specifically doing jump from this device to that device to the next device. This thing's moving. You gotta hop on this and ride down. It plays like Mario. It really plays like Mario. Well, I think that's more of a negative way to look at it. I think I understand your point. I have played this scene in a video game. The Quantum of Solace James Bond video game from Xbox 360 not only had Quantum of Solace, but halfway through the Quantum of Solace plot, they go back and do scenes from Casino Royale. So both movies are covered. And the first scene for the Casino Royale scenes is this scene. You have to run up these things, and there are a lot more guys you have to shoot, of course, because it is a video game. And a lot more people try to get in the way, but it's basically this. And it's a lot of fun to play. But I never think of the action actual scene that I'm watching as a video game because of all the character stuff that's going on. I think Stuart hit the nail on the head there, and I gave the example already. What really hits the whole scene home is when he jumps to the top of the door and Bond comes through the wall like Kool-Aid or the Hulk, take your pick, and smashes through this brute, and it's just a wonderful way to exemplify what they're talking about. I also love how the scene is edited. You can follow everything that's going on, on a busy construction site or an embassy or up in the girders, wherever they're going, this thing is edited so well that you are never lost. You would never have a question about who is who, where are they, what's going on. And it's a phenomenal piece of editing and direction as well as an incredibly action-oriented stunt scene. Martin Campbell, I forgive you for Green Lantern. This scene is that good. It's just incredible. And I love the punchline, too. This guy just got his status, and then he completely blows it by busting into an embassy, disrespecting international law, and killing a man right there. I mean, all for a cell phone. I think the joke is really funny that all of that drama and chase is all about getting a cell phone. Well, it was supposed to be about getting him. It's just that's what he walks away with is the cell phone. Right. Bond makes a clear choice, though. He could have kept him alive. They could have had this continue another way. They could have gone through arbitration and had the embassy get it to London. 
They could have done all of these things. Bond lets you know at the end of this scene that he'd rather kill him and get his cell phone than do the work it would take to get him out and interrogate him. I think that's just setting up who Daniel Craig is as a Bond. He is an efficient killing machine. He is best at putting bullets in people. And that leads right into M's introduction when she gives him a chewing out... <laughs> That is amazing. I just love her character and her frustration there. And we come across Bond again when he breaks into M's apartment, which is rare if ever happens in James Bond movies. And they have their first scene together, which I think is also a winner, reintroducing M. And I think it's a different kind of M, even though it's the same character and the same woman playing the character. I think it's a different M in the way it's written and portrayed. And especially the relationship between Bond and M is completely different. And you can see it in this first scene. It's the writing. The writing on this has just stepped nine times. The dialogue is so beautiful in this movie. The exchanges are witty. They're smart. They're funny. You don't even catch jokes on the first time that you get the second time. You're right. This banter, this relationship M has had with Bond, is longstanding. This is not a different relationship than what Pierce had with her. But it is so much more funny and alive because of the dialogue. And, of course, what Daniel Craig is bringing to the role. But really, it's that writing that I think really sings. And it helps, I think, that the screenwriting team that's been putting out a lot of the last couple of Brosnans got some assist from Oscar-winning writer Paul Hadges. He came in here and did some doctoring, I believe. He did some character polishing, yes, but his main contribution was the end of the film for him led to understand. But he did do a character polish on this scene in particular. You're dead on. This reeks of Paul Haggis to me. I thought we might actually get M's name. I also thought M was a title. I enjoyed that little tease. Yes. <laughs> they have lots of fun playing with what we know before. I think that that's part of the fun of doing Casino Royale, the very first book, is that we've had all these other Bond adventures. We know all of the stuff that's coming in the future. By going back, they play with that. Yes, we've always wanted to know M's name, and they don't tell us. And we also know that Bond always drives a Aston Martin. So when he's off to the Bahamas driving a Ford, I'm slapping my forehead going, what? It ends up being a great joke, but I'll tell you, at first it feels like the worst kind of product placement at a time when Ford's whole brand was in the toilet, 2006, to see Bond driving around in a rental. I'm like, wow. But it really sets up the fact that he is not there yet. He is not the Bond with the cool car, with everything that he's going to be. To add insult to injury, Stuart, with the car, I thought it was that American Idol car that they always push on American Idol. As, <laughs> I saw the Ford. I could have swore it was. I have no idea if it is. And yeah, the stuff in Nassau, that first scene with the whole valet joke, too, that works completely. And how they take us on the journey of how Bond figures out what he needs. Because we have no idea what he's doing there yet and why he's going there. He traces a cell phone there through M's computer. But how is he going to figure this out? The whole thing, we see Bond do spy work. And it's so much fun and interesting to watch him create a distraction and get the information he needs. It was so entertaining and it was hardly any dialogue at all in the entire scene. I agree. This is the best detecting Bond has ever done. The idea that he's able to see who got the phone call by matching the tapes on the video camera with the outgoing message on the bomber's cell phone. It's brilliant. It's just a lot of fun and they just keep doing this. This movie is a constant series of cleverness. I'm so impressed with how they've upscaled everything here. 
I agree completely as well. I was just so happy to see him actually investigate in a way that made logical sense. We've seen Bond go from place to place after lackey after lackey, finding dropped line here, dropped line there. But this time, it's actually a bit more clever because nobody's dropping a line. We see Bond using M's computer to trace this to the Bahamas, and then we see him slipping in here. The valet thing struck me a little bit Axel Foley, but the rest of it I was completely going with. I also love the payoff later in the movie with that guy at the bar. You didn't even have to do that, but the fact that they did is just a wonderful button on this joke for me of this valet. Another illusion they make. Now, Daniel Craig is Ursula Andress. When we see someone coming out of the water, it's not a Bond babe, it's him. He's coming up to find out who Ellipsis is. It ends up being this Greek guy that lives up the hill that has this hot wife, and so he's swimming out of the water, catching her eye as she's riding by on horseback, and they have this great chemistry here. I feel bad for her because I think with her being the first Bond girl, she's probably going to follow tradition here. I don't think they're going to break that rule. I'm surprised at how I'm enjoying everything they're giving me at every given moment. I've never had that in a Bond movie. Bond movies are usually much more fitful of things that work and then don't. But here, everything works so organically. Wouldn't it have been great, Stuart, if he had a knife on his side of his suit? Just because it definitely is an Ursula Andress moment. <laughs> yes. You know, Daniel Craig's a real weird one because on one hand, I don't think he's a very good-looking guy. You could say, yeah, he's short, he's got funny features, big ears, all of that, but he's really well-built, and there's just, he's got that great movie star quality. Great movie stars have the ability to be able to look great in one moment, to look really classic, turn to the camera, and with the right lighting, look really incredible, and then in the next moment, look haggard, rough, it still project humanity and frailty, and I think that's what Daniel Craig does. I think that he is the fix on Timothy Dalton. We all like Bond's anger in Living Daylights, License to Kill, but here I think they fix the problem he has with women by giving us someone that has more movie star charisma. I'm going to go further than what you've just said. You called Timothy Dalton the ugliest Bond ever. Craig steals that mantle. He is an ugly, ugly man. He is not in the least bit handsome. If there's ever a Mad Magazine live-action movie, Craig has the ears for it. Uh, in certain moments, I agree with you. But in other moments, he's a great-looking guy. I mean, I think that's the trick, is that they can turn it on and off when they want to. When he shows up later in the tuxedo, you go, wow. Leading man. I think it's right there. I think that's the whole point of what we're doing here. Also, I think he's playing it this way, a little rougher around the edges, so we're getting that. When he shows up in the suits and the tuxedos, he's a very good-looking man. And throughout this movie, he gets his ass kicked. He's bleeding. He's cut. He's rough. He gets really hurt. And we don't really see James Bond get that hurt that often. He always comes out of these fights bleeding. And I think if he looks like the traditional James Bond, we wouldn't believe it as much that this guy is as rough around the edges. And it's really a great idea to have this brute of a guy with that swagger. When he cleans himself up, I completely buy that he's a handsome man and why Vesper likes him and this woman finds him attractive. When he turns the charm on, you can see it in his smile with that whole scene with the Aston Martin. I think it completely works, Arnie. I wouldn't call him ugly. I wouldn't call him Alfred Lee Newman. I think he has a different kind of look that completely works for the James Bond story they're telling here. And I think he's affecting it physically as well to accentuate this rough and tumble. He's not pretty like Brosnan, but you know what? As much as I came to respect what Brosnan did for Bond, I don't think Brosnan could pull off what's going on in this movie. 
Well, I do like what you said, Brock, about him getting beat up. That's the one thing that really impressed me is Sean Connery could be at dinner with a woman, walk into the next room, have a huge fight, go back, sit down, and finish his bisque. Here, Craig walks out of every single one, bloodied, bruised, he has to go wash up. I wonder how he's hiding all the tears on his knuckles from punching, but it really did add a grim and gritty reality. And I say grim and gritty intentionally because to me, when you try to take something and make it grim and gritty, that seems to be a fashionable thing. It's kind of a holdover from the 90s when they started, everything was grim and gritty, but it's actually working here. A lot of the 70s cinema did a lot of grim and gritty too, Arnie. No, I'm specifically saying taking something that wasn't and giving it the grit wash was something I equate with the 90s, whereas the 70s just had gritty film. But not Bond. Not Bond. Not Bond, right. And these fights, they're not matching what they did in the opening. How could they? But these fights are cool. When we go to Body World, oh man, how do I love that? I've been to that exhibit and man, it'll just blow your mind. So what better place to plant a corpse than the middle of all of these plasticized human bodies? I think all of this stuff is great. How about a public murder, Stuart? A public murder. All those people are around and they're doing it quietly and he kills them right there in plain sight. Unbelievable. I've been to Body World. I think I went with you, Stuart. I just kind of hoped that the murder would leave the corpses among the Body World corpses. But Wait, he'd have to skin them and then put a funny hat on him and do a pose or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's that talented. Bond knows how to kill, but I don't think he's got that gift of an undertaker. And just because we skipped over it really quickly, I love the seduction scene as well and how he gets out of it to follow their husband to Miami. The whole thing about the caviar and champagne for one. I think they spent the right amount of time in that seduction scene. And I love how Bond really wasn't into it at all. It was just part of the job. I don't think we've ever seen Bond seduce a woman and so blatantly be it part of the job, except for a view to the kill, I guess, with the hot tub scene. I think this one is amazingly efficient in what he's doing. I'm so glad they didn't spend longer on that scene than they had to. That's exactly it, is that I think of this guy is first and foremost about the kill. Nothing as important as the kill, and that includes women. Everything else he does, he enjoys. He likes his martini. He likes his sex. He likes earthly pleasures, but what he lives for is killing. He's characterized as this brutal instrument, and that's what I'm getting. And that's why these action moments really do come alive, because I do believe that they'll end with a corpse on the ground. I mean, this movie's PG-13, right? But it plays R to me. Well, we don't actually see a lot of the kills. We see the result of the kills. In my mind, the effect of it. You know what I'm saying? Even though it's PG-13 violence, to me, this feels like a very brutal film. It feels like an R-rated film to me. It definitely is the single most brutal film we've seen in this series. It works for it, though. Here's the thing. I think I've been very clearly established in this series as not a James Bond fan. But by doing this, you are grounding James Bond in such a way, which is exactly what a reboot should do, to make it accessible to me. To somebody who knows enough about Bond, I knew even before this retrospective, the trademarks and things like that, the music, the martini, but to see it all come together here in this way in a grounded way that makes it appeal to yes a post-born audience it could go very wrong it could have gone completely the other way they could have taken these risks and ended up alienating the fans and not finding the right audience but here i think they've struck the perfect balance i think that movie was called license to kill yes they could have done that but they have still made very much a bond movie in keeping with everything that they've had in their tradition while addressing yes post-born and post 9-11 one of the reasons why i think this movie really grabs you is that the plot that he's getting in here is about 
blowing up an airline. Four years after 9-11, it's impressive to me that they'd want to go there, but they do. He's stopping an airline terrorist here when he gets to Miami. It's a good point, Stuart. And what I like about what they do here with this is that Bond does stop the terrorist, and he does it not just with the violence. And I like the terrorist being smart as Bond is. Bond figures out the code. Bond figures out who it is. He figures out what they're doing. I like that it's a big action scene, but it's also smart. And it's violent and gritty, but there's intelligence here. And so I'm not sure if you guys noticed also that this is the last big action scene for a long time in this movie. And so what I think they do with this one is they really give us a pulse-pounding action action scene to set us up for the plot that's coming, which is exciting in a different way. But this one is like the big, big set piece kind of thing for a long time before the rest of the movie starts. That's true because they haven't gotten to the story that's in the novel. Right now, they're just doing things that will feel Bond-like and feel contemporary. This 9-11 hijacker cabal plot here. But yeah, they're actually going to do the novel. I already covered that over at Books and Nachos. I'm shocked that they're able to incorporate so much of that book that is 50 years old and really bring it into this contemporary setting. It's really impressive the transition they have. I don't know how they're going to go from trying to blow up the Skyline airline into playing cards, but it becomes an entirely different throwback after this point. And I love that James Bond's mission is specifically not to kill him. Again, like the bomb maker, M wants this guy alive. She wants him to come needing their help so that he'll give up all his secrets. And Bond, as you guys have repeated from the script several times, he's the blunt instrument. That is not his instinct. In the book, it's a little bit more clear. Fleming always kind of sold Bond as a character whose fortune was just always on his side. He was a lucky man that for whatever reason, the universe had anointed him as a good card player. And so he was the man that they always used in games of chance, baccarat, horse racing, whatever it may be. Whenever you're making a bet, bet on Bond because he always wins. That's the way Fleming wrote it. So you're right. It's risky to say that this brutal killing machine can all of a sudden put on a tux and play cards, it's a big risk at this point. Is this movie going to be able to transition into that after so much kinetic action? Can it slow down and be a much more thought-provoking? Can it be the kind of suspense where you're wondering what card is going to be flipped over as opposed to how are they going to jump from the crane to the embassy? It's just a different movie from this point. And I think they're scared to do that, though. During these poker scenes, they're actually some of my favorite scenes of the film. The action was good, but here, I've always liked Bond when he's doing the tete-a-tete at the card table or the video game table or whatever table he's at that movie. But I think that they were so afraid because between seemingly every hand, Bond gets poisoned and has to run to the car and defibrillate himself. Bond gets into a fist fight in the stairwell. Bond gets into this fight, that fight. They were scared of losing the adrenalized audience, I think, here. And I almost think that's to the detriment because it gets to be a little silly that every time, oh my god, another fight, oh, gotta put on another shirt. I just completely disagree with what you just said. I think it works completely. I think they transition to this different part of the movie by introducing Vesper Lind in the train and telling us this is how the movie's going to go from here. I think that key scene with Vesper in the train is how they elegantly transition to it. And the scenes you're talking about, when the action scene's peppered in, it helps with plot, it helps with the romance, it helps with showing us how Bond is inexperienced and not ahead of the game like he normally is in other movies. I think every single action scene that is interspersed with the cards helps the movie, the characterization, and the love story. I completely disagree with you. 
I'm with you, Brock. I can't believe how good this movie is at the love story. If they stopped doing any kind of fights and just had scenes for the rest of this movie between Daniel Craig and Eva Green, I would still call this a fantastic film. Their chemistry in this movie is everything. I just don't know how this would work if it was not Daniel Craig and Eva Green having these wonderful lines, but I'm completely intoxicated. I mean, this is kind of Casablanca kind of stuff. I love these characters like I've loved few lovers on screen. They're just fantastic to watch. I guess I'm just not as into that as you two are. To me, this felt like the James Bond relationship we've seen so many times before. The one who seems immune to his charms and will eventually succumb to his charms. You don't think Eva Green's the best Bond girl, like, ever? She's the best actress and she's the best written, but this relationship, maybe it's because we're on, what, Bond movie number 22? But the whole thing had kind of a played out feel to it to me. I disagree completely. I think what happens here is Bond sizes her up, she sizes him up, and Bond meets a woman that he's not used to. This woman is stepping toe-to-toe to him. He has a lot of damaged goods along with her, and Bond is damaged goods. And I see these two falling in love because they're coming from two different places, but they find themselves at the same place. I love the chemistry between these two actors, too. It's remarkable they hired her after production began. <laughs> I don't know what took them so long to find this actress. The chemistry between these two actors is amazing, and... What kills me about the relationship is after the big fight in the stairwell is that shower scene. And apparently Daniel Craig had something to do with them still wearing their clothes in the shower. He walks right in there and he take his own shirt off, walks in next to her. They don't say a word. They just hug each other. She's physically shaking after watching this man brutally kill this guy in the stairwell. She has to witness it firsthand right there. That speaks volumes about both characters and their relationship and how they feel about each other without saying a word. And I think that kind of stuff is what this core of this movie if you watch the first half of this movie you're not expecting that and the fact that they can have these two movies meld together and work completely is a marvel i think these two anchor this movie in a way that we haven't seen any james bond movie before including the love story we watched in on her majesty's secret service it's just remarkable how well this plays for me that's exactly it. They're going for On Her Majesty's. Bond is going to fall in love with this girl that is going to die. It is the same story being told. They had a good actress for that one. Tracy Bond was great, but I really think that this is a chemistry that they've never had before. It's exactly it. They're in new territory. This movie has just stepped out of the formula box and really gone for a whole different universe. I'm amazed at how good the stuff is when they get to Montenegro. By the way, where the hell is Montenegro? I didn't even know this was a country. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know where in the world they were, but when they get here, the pace slows down. This becomes about relationships. It does become about de-icing this rough killer that we've had here. Like I said, every scene between these two characters is dynamite here. It is the movie. Forget all of the parkour and all of that. As good as that stuff is, the best stuff is right here. It's funny because I am far more into the relationship between Bond and the people at the poker table than I am between Bond and Vesper. I don't see what you guys saw with that. It didn't engross me in that way. I'm all about Le Chiffre and his plot and his plans and his wonderful plan. I love how he short sells the stocks and then forces the companies to lose money. I think that's a wonderful 21st century evil villain kind of thing, especially again, as you mentioned, Stuart Pose 9-11, where 
where an airline caused the stock market to plummet drastically. A few years before our financial collapse, they didn't even know how prescient this kind of villain would be. But yes, someone that manipulates the stock market to actually make terrorists rich is a great concept. And I don't really know this guy. I know Max Mickelson had done a lot of foreign films, Scandinavian films, but he's really great here too. I love the little crying blood conceit. I love his look. I think Lashif here is tremendous. I like that he's a Bond villain with a little bit of a physical thing, but it's not his whole character. Apparently, he doesn't blink. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. I've seen this movie a few times. I've never seen him not blink, so at this time I was watching it, and I didn't catch him blinking. Apparently, the character can't, and it's part of the reason he cries blood and why he's a milky eye. I like that the man's so smart. And I like that the villain is flawed, that he has a problem. I don't think we've seen that before, that we have a villain who has his master plan, but it doesn't go exactly as he wants to so early in the movie. It's really a nice way to introduce a Bond villain, but not make it Drax or some Christopher Walken kind of crazy town, take over the world kind of thing. It's a different kind of villain, even though he's doing a lot of the same Bondian type of things. Traditionally, I think that the movie would have ended with Bond stopping the plane from being blown up. Well, the villain lost his plot. The end. You're right. The villain has to pick himself up. He just lost a Ugandan warlord's whole money. That guy's going to come to kill him unless he can make it up at the table. We're worried about him. (laughs) You know, we're thinking, oh my god, how is he going to get that money to pay off that warlord? We've never been asked to project ourselves into the shoes of these villains before. It is a much more gray kind of way of thinking about these characters, morally conflicted. Yeah, I love it. It's very 21st century. Another Bond joke that they play off of here is we've commented in the past that James Bond never really uses an alias that often, that he's always James Bond. Well, here he is given a false name. He and Eva Green were supposed to be go by Arlington Beach and Stephanie Broadchest. I mean, these are the characters as they would be named back in the 60s and the 70s. Bond rejects that. He's not going to play by an alias. He's going to be who he is, and he's going to figure out things by watching how people respond to him. Bond is smart. It's important to recognize here that he is using his cunning, his wits, that comes through in the card playing here. He is more than how he's being characterized by M as a killing machine here. One of the things he learns here early, too, is the tell. I mean, I like how they play off this Lashif battle. He's getting Lashif to feel comfortable winning so that he can learn his reaction when he has good cards. And that's a classic thing in poker movies. If you've watched anything like the movie Maverick, it's a lot of fun with this kind of thing. And it's a wonderful way to get into a basic introduction to the fun of playing cards. Arnie, you mentioned how it's intercut with his action scenes. What cracks me up is we have the World Series of Poker announcer, Mathis, telling us all (laughs) how the game of poker (laughs) works. It's honestly like they don't trust the audience to be smart. I wish they would have just muted this guy because they're like, oh, it's the tell. He is bluffing. (laughs) It's terrible. It's not terrible. And I guess I'm not smart. I don't play cards. So I needed this stuff. I would have been lost without this stuff. I understand that you guys probably play a lot more cards or have poker nights. I needed it. I appreciated it. It was good to have a sense of where we were in the game. I'm not sure I would have gotten it without it. But it's not like Vesper says, I don't understand what's going on here, Mathis. He just shares the information with her. As if, psst, everybody watching, he needs a better hand than a full house or whatever. It's really funny if you realize that he's not talking to anybody. He's literally talking to the audience. 
I know for a fact I have seen better movies that do not need to handhold, and if you don't understand everything that's going on, they can convey through actors' faces and through dialogue that makes sense what's going on, even if you don't understand that a straight flush beats a full house. It's a matter of how they do it. Here, it felt like somebody left the subtitles on. To further that point, we've seen Baccarat, I don't know how many times in the series, and they never explained to us once how it's played. Read the book. It's all there. God knows. It's the, you can learn how to play every game of cards if you read Fleming. You know what, though? We talked about Le Chiffre, but honestly, I liked everybody at that table. That table just seemed like a fun place to play poker. And I think they cast this so well, because I didn't know any of these actors, but they were all very convincing. They were all very fun. And so when one of them turned out to be Felix Leiter, I was genuinely shocked. I just would never have been able to pick out, oh, there's the one actor I know, or there's the one actor who's getting all the lines. He should be important. He blended very well with a great group of colorful characters. What I love about it is that they always surprise us because a different actor plays Felix Leiter every single time. This is the first time I never figured it out. <laughs> this is like, oh, Felix Leiter, how cool! As opposed to, oh, it's Felix Leiter. It was a really nice moment, and I think Jeffrey Wright was a really nice choice for the character. I know Jeffrey Wright from a lot of different character bits. He was in Manchurian Candidates remake, Syriana. I recognized him as a star that was going to play a role. I don't think when I saw this movie that I remembered that Felix Leiter was anybody. I didn't remember that Bond did have a friend in the CIA, so it didn't mean anything to know that he was going to play Felix Leiter. Now, of course, having gone through the retrospective, I'm like, well, it's on you now. Let's see if you can do something more from this role than the dozens of other people that have tried and failed to be a credible Felix Leiter. Can we finally say that Jeffrey Wright is the best Felix? I agree with you, Stuart. He's by far the guy who's doing the most with the little bit of character he's given in the script. He is taking it and running with it, and he's shoving a lot of presence. I also like the fact that he befriends Bond here, and he is the reason that Bond can continue. Felix has a reason to be there, <laughs> which he doesn't always have in these James Bond movies. I'm not going to say he's the best Felix Leiter because, I don't know, I have a thing for Jack Lord in that role. But I do really like this guy in this position. And yes, that they give him something important to do. That he's looking for his own career and he's not just there to help MI6 out. It's the best portrayal of Leiter, but Jack Lord just really owned that part to me. That was 50 years ago, Arnie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think he owned the part. You're still comparing Craig to Connery, so I think I can compare this guy to Jack Lord. Yeah, that's completely the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> Completely. There's a part in the video game where you get poisoned and you have to stagger back to the car to get defibrillated. And I was reminded of that watching this movie for this podcast, how much fun it was. It was really hard to get to that car in 90 seconds, let me tell you. I was moving my controller around like crazy. I really enjoyed Daniel Craig's poisoning scene. I don't know how many poisoning scenes I've actually watched in movies. I mean, Indiana Jones comes to mind and he seemed to last pretty long with that quick moving poison, according to Laoshe. But here, I really bought that the man was poisoned and he was trying to keep his cool and and then when he gets to the street, he's all haggard and staggering, and he can't actually do the whole thing in the car. I think the scene played incredibly well for what really could have been a really hokey sequence. Oh, I was gripping the seat when I watched this originally, and I think it's even more meaningful to know that Valinka, Lashif's girlfriend, is the one that poisoned him. He saved their life. Just an hour ago, African warlords had stormed into her room and held her at machete point, and Bond took them out in the stairwell, and she repays him by 
putting poison in his martini. I mean, that's cold, lady. That's real cold. It's a great scene, and it brings Vesper and Bond together. I mean, I really like how it softens that relationship, too. This whole thing happening in Montenegro is really about watching Bond's cold heart thaw and learning to trust this woman. And this is another scene where he would have died had she not come out there and pushed the button for him. It is a great scene. I just want to compliment this movie on the use of Bond gadgets, because that's one of the trademark things with Bond is Bond gadgets. And when trying to reboot and ground this thing, that's something they could have jettisoned altogether. But by just making him high tech and having this little medical device and the car itself, it is a great, again, splitting of the difference and to use it in such a way it's not what gets him out of his final trouble but it saves his life when he's poisoned and it makes sense that a spy would have this i really like the scene to go further with that point, Arnie, you're absolutely right. He uses a cell phone in a way that a lot of us don't. He's able to break into a computer with M. So he's technologically savvy. And the gadgets he uses aren't things we haven't heard of before, but he uses them in ways or has them available to him in places where normal people wouldn't. But the further that point that you're making about how they could have jettisoned it completely, but they found a way to use it cleverly. At the end of the scene, as a button, when he goes back to the table, Bond says one of the only true one-liners of the movie, that last hand, it nearly killed me. And the way that Craig puts it across isn't Brosnan, isn't Moore, isn't even Connery. It fits it perfectly. It tells Le Chiffre, I know it was you. You're an ass. I survived. Let's play cards. And it's a perfect Bond one-liner, but in the context of the movie and how he says it, fits in perfectly. They didn't overdo it here, folks, with the stupid one-liners or the clever one-liners, depending on how much you like that particular movie. And this one, they hit a home run with this one. You've been looking for a laugh because your adrenaline had been so rushing at watching him poisoned. I mean, we were just ready for the release. The guy could have said anything and I probably would have chuckled. But yeah, it's a killer line. And this is when we know that Bond is going to win. I mean, nothing says myth better than coming back from the dead. This guy just died and came back. You know he's not going to lose to Le Chiffre now at the table. This is where he gets to kick ass. And it's a lot of fun watching this ante up to the amount that Le Chiffre needs, right? I mean, if Le Chiffre wins this hand... And it hits 125 million. Well, he's even made a profit on all the money he lost on not blowing up the airline. And you guys are focused on Bond during this. I want to just give the actor who plays Le Chiffre a shout out because the look on his face when Bond comes back is what makes the scene for me. Just the holy shit, you're still alive look. Yeah, it's some great minimalist movements. A dart of the eyes, a purse of the mouth. This is some great stuff here. Best acting we've ever seen in a Bond movie. So, of course, Bond wins. He goes and celebrates. They have another nice romantic moment with Vesper. They've opened up a dining room. It's actually closed, but they're feeding them fine dining. And he notices her Algerian love knot that she's wearing. I mean, these kinds of things, I feel like they're always in Bond and they stand out better. It's so nuanced. I don't see what's coming when they set this up. I don't see that Vesper is really going to betray him. And this scene, the way that it plays, I believe that she's fallen in love with him and would do anything for him. I'm not prepared for the fact that she gets up, gets quote-unquote kidnapped, and allows Bond to fall into the clutches of Le Chiffre. 
I think you're misreading this one, Stuart. I think she doesn't cut the deal until she gets on the boat. I think she gets kidnapped legitimately from this place because Mathis is the one that betrays, or at least Bond thinks so. I didn't catch what you caught because they leave her in the street to get run over by Bond. They wouldn't do that if they cut a deal with her before the boat. But Mathis ends up being exonerated. I mean, Mathis, we think it's him, but it actually isn't him. It all comes down to the tell that Bond's exchanged to both of them that he knows what Le Chief's tell is. Well, actually, one of them went back to him. We think it's Mathis because, well, let's face it, we'd rather believe it's the ugly Italian guy than the beautiful woman. But I disagree. I think that she's in it. I think that she has been corrupted because she's wearing that Algerian knot. It reminds her of the lover that's in captivity. Her real lover, not Bond, the man she's really in love with, is being held captive by this group. And she has to do what they say. Yeah, I think Stuart has it right on this one. I, at least that's how I read it. Yeah, I stand corrected. I think, Stuart, you're onto it. I missed when we're told that she's the one who betrayed him. I missed it. Yeah. And that's due to how great these performances are. You really believe them in this moment to know that she's setting him up. It's a killer. It's a killer to realize that she's allowing him to get caught. And what if he hadn't been good on the break? She would have been run over. You're right. Well, you know, I've seen this movie five, six, seven times, and I have to watch it again now. Thank you, Stuart, for an excuse to watch this movie again. I get, wow, you know, listening to you say that, you're absolutely right. Then we get into what I would say is the most infamous scene of the movie. Maybe the one that people tell people that haven't seen the movie about before they go in. I've probably spoiled like the shower scene in Psycho. Oh man, oh man. Bond gets Le Chiffre to scratch his balls. That is a scene that I knew about before I ever saw the movie. I didn't know the scratching of the balls. I just knew Daniel Craig was naked and his balls were repeatedly mashed. This is brutal. This is what I mean about R-rated. I mean, this does not usually play out. We don't usually see heroes have their man sacks beaten to a pulp in a PG. And it's notable to say that the first time we saw James Bond tortured on screen was the last movie, Die Another Day. Here, they do torture in a whole different way, and I dare say it's fun. I feel for the man. I really do. And I was squirming in my seat a little bit every time you watch it, but man, was that a fun scene, and the interaction between the two of the actors is just great, and oh, it's just a great scene. I do like it, because you really feel Le Chiffre has the upper hand in every way. No matter what, he thinks he's walking out of that. He's going to torture Bond. If he needs to, he'll kill Bond, but... He'd rather have the money, but even if he doesn't get it, MI6 wants him alive. They want to give him asylum. And you really think Bond is just completely screwed. May I just say, out of all the Bond films we've ever seen, it's the first time I believe there's a reason to kill him slowly. We need that password only he has. And it's the most believable he got out of the impossible to get out of situation ever, too. And you know, as tough as Craig looks in the scene, you get his fear here, too. The way his lip quivers, the way he is fighting back the tears, the way he is trying to play tough. You see his vulnerability. He doesn't like to show it. The character doesn't like to show it. But I really think it's just an incredible feat of acting that he pulls off here that really just brings you in. As if it weren't enough that I'm watching a man get his balls beat, I'm connecting with him. Bond has never felt so, well, literally naked. Honestly, do you think a man's balls could recover from that? I think that's pretty much the end of the balls. 
He's always got his little finger. <laughs> I love this scene. This exchange is so moving. I teared up when I saw this. When she's saying, I love you, she means it. Even though she screwed him over. Even though she's the reason why he's in this condition. I think it's guilt as much as her respect for him. But the walls really come crashing down here. And that scene where we find out the password was her name and unveiling the money is also unveiling their hearts. I just think that this is maybe the most extraordinary scene in the movie. It's certainly dramatic an incredible moment. I don't know if Bond's balls are going to recover, but my heart is permanently broken by this scene. Well, Stuart, based on what you said a second ago about Vesper and when we actually get a clue that she portrayed him earlier in the movie as opposed to later, her reaction here after she finds out the password has new meaning for me. And it's wonderful because really you can see now, if you caught it, which apparently I didn't, that she realized she had it the whole time. And she didn't have to put this man through that because she knew the password the whole time. She could have figured it out. But I think then after she figures that part out, then she has sex with him after that because her heart does pour out for this man. And actually, Arnie, they had a longer recovery scene for him. You actually get the idea that's like weeks and weeks that he's been sitting in this chair. This was the scene that when I was in the theater, I turned to the people I was with and was just looking at them incredulously like, I can't believe Bond is going here. He's quitting. This is his maiden voyage to become an agent and he's decided to quit it all and go sailing away to Venice with a woman he loves. I can suspect that it's not going to end well or knowing what I know about Honor Majesty's Secret Service that maybe she's going to get taken from him. But I can't believe that this Bond movie is brave enough to have this romantic interlude. I mean, this is really risky stuff. They did it in montage in Honor Majesty's but here it lingers. I feel like this movie, its pace has really slowed and rather than feel boring it just feels remarkable. And because I didn't get what you guys got, I didn't care as much about their courtship during the card game. I was more into the card scenes than the shower scenes. This here didn't work for me. I wanted there to have been something else there, which you guys apparently got and I didn't, of when early on, Bond is into married women. He doesn't want attachment. He doesn't want availability. He doesn't want a relationship. So that evolution for him, you guys saw it, I never did. Yeah, I think this movie works as drama. That's what I'm incredulous about, particularly in this moment, is how well it is working for me about a spy that's fallen in love. Forget his mission, forget what he's done in the action. To me, it works this way. I think it's amazing that you can get such amazing Wi-Fi coverage on the canals of Venice. Can you hear me now? I wish I got that coverage (laughs) in my own apartment doing this show. But of course, it has to come crashing down and almost a Hitchcockian way. I got to say, the way that they bring this climax together with the a woman in the red dress and all of this. This is the second time I've gotten an Alfred Hitchcock vibe watching a Bond movie. The last time was from Russia with Love. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but his pursuit of Eva Green after she's stolen the money and through Venice, this feels like an entirely different movie than we've had the last two hours. But I like it. It's intentional. Well, good. They were going for Hitchcockian vibe. Yeah, just like they're going for a noir type and actually a specific noir in the beginning of the movie. Here they're doing it. I think Martin Campbell is honest about how he lifts certain things from different movies that he likes and makes it his own, or at least an homage to things. He enjoys that, and here he definitely saw the opportunity, and I think it works completely. I love how efficient Bond is when he shoots the sentry. I love the chase and how far a distance he is. I love the subtlety of the whole scene, and then I love how it's no longer subtle, and it just becomes the building comes crashing down, and she's trapped in a cage. Wow! It's just remarkable the different levels this one scene has for telling this story. Now, this was CGI, right? 
the building falling apart with CGI because I think that the Italians would have a heart attack if one of those <laughs> came crashing down for real. Question. I've heard that Venice is losing its buildings because the water is rising or the buildings are sinking. I'm not sure which, but that it is a legitimate problem. Is this their solution? Put a bunch of inflatable mattresses in the bottom and if someone should shoot it out, the whole thing's going to go crashing down? I don't understand what's going on here, but it is poetic and beautiful. It signifies where we're at with this movie watching her yes in a cage wet like she was in the shower scene watching this final exchange emotionally i'm right there with it they're going for titanic they're not going for bond and i'm glad they are and arnie to clarify the interiors were a set on a giant movable thing with water and tank and all that but the outside shots of it crumbling were cgi evolution of effects here it's so real i couldn't tell if it was a model or if it was you know sometimes they demolish real buildings they need to come down i love her death it is so painful so well filmed so well shot i love the underwater clarity here it's just a great action scene the bitch is dead he goes back into cold mode we see that heart seal over again he was vulnerable it cost him something it cost him the money they didn't recover the money right like the bad guy gets away with it yeah, Mr. White gets the money. And we see him having to go back to being the guy at the start of this movie. It's a tragedy. I didn't think I was watching a tragedy. I thought I was watching someone become a hero. But this is a tragedy. And to me, it's so much more palpable than what they were doing with Honor Majesty. I get that people like Honor Majesty and what they were doing with that love story and the tragic death of Tracy. But that is just a high school production compared to what they've done with this now here at the end. Now... I've been with you guys pretty much praising this film, but guys, you gotta give me something here. I'm gonna try to see if I can get you guys to admit this film has a flaw. Aren't you frustrated here at the end when Bond goes after Mr. White? And Stuart, I'm gonna single you out. In previous movie reviews this year, Amazing Spider-Man and Prometheus, you got on the soapbox and said you're tired of movies that don't answer the question and just wait for the next movie. That's what this is. I am left unsatisfied because this whole shadow work organization and everything is left completely unanswered it's not even hinted at just that there is a shadow organization i'm thinking specter but did you guys feel a little bit of bondus interruptus when the credits roll in 2006, watching this movie, I didn't understand that it wasn't over. I mean, I don't think I was asking those questions. Like I said, I was experiencing this much more like a drama. I felt devastated. I felt exhilarated. I felt like I had gotten everything I wanted out of the movie. So the fact that there was going to be some carryover with Mr. White, I didn't even anticipate this. I get a surprise when we talk about Quantum of Solace. I did not know we would start right back up at this moment at the start of that movie. I thought this was just a way of ending it. I thought he had caught the bad guy and I thought the next movie would be entirely different characters doing something entirely different. I didn't understand how tightly woven this was until I saw Quantum of Solace. And for me, Arnie, I think that it was completely satisfying. The guy shoots the guy in the leg and he says the line, Bond, James Bond. It's a perfect way to end the movie. I have a grin on my face from ear to ear every time I watch this scene. The music comes up, Bond's in the three-piece suit. He is getting the upper hand instead of falling behind and having to react. He's causing it. But to answer your question about the Shadow Organization, this movie isn't about the Shadow Organization. This movie is about Bond coming to become Bond. And what they're doing throughout this entire movie is they're peppering 
in parts of James Bond that we all know, whether it be a different way to tell a gadget, whether it is a subtler way to have a one-liner, whether it is a relationship with M, or how he becomes the cold spy, how he becomes a double O. Well, the shadow organization they hint at, clearly to me, I'm thinking it's Spectre. That's them peppering it in a little bit for futures, just like they peppered in Felix Slider. The whole thing, it works completely for me, Arnie. I don't need that resolution because this movie is the beginning of James Bond, and what they're doing is telling us there's a shadow organization that James Bond's going to have to go up against in the future because that's what James Bond has done in the past. In the past movies, I should say. And a lot of the story strands have been closed. Their banker was iced. I mean, Bond has done some victories. Sometimes when it's really made me mad is when I felt like nothing has been resolved. They've introduced a lot of questions without answering any of them. If they picked up and did something entirely different, I wouldn't feel cheated. For me, I'm leaving this, even the first time I watched it, before I knew anything about Quantum of Solace, I'm sitting here going, what was the point? What was Le Chiffre that made him such a big bad that vanquishing him is the point? I mean, the fact that we capture White at the end almost feels like an afterthought. I'd forgotten about White till he shows up at the very climax. So, Le Chiffre is my villain here, and he tried to blow up an airplane. It's a little lackluster for a Bond villain to vanquish in a film. And Brock, I know you have a grin from ear to ear because you finally got the Bond James Bond. You're the Bond fan. This is what you want. This is your money shot or your money audio. For me, I just wanted a villain that was worthy. And I love Le Chiffre as a character. I love the actor who plays him and the way he plays him here. But when credits roll, I felt unfulfilled the first time in that they didn't answer any questions. They built this mythology. I figured they had to go back there in a sequel. How could they not? I didn't expect it to pick up where it will, which is the exact frame it ends here, but I just felt the same kind of frustration that Stuart expressed during Prometheus and Amazing Spider-Man, which are both movies I recommended, but was equally frustrated on that regard. And both movies I didn't, so uh, go figure. I don't think they set up the exact frame, Arnie, but they pick up right where this one leaves off. No, he drove down the road. (laughs) (laughs) So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Casino Royale? Stuart. It's as good as I remembered. I had not seen this movie in six years. I was a little afraid, honestly, when we started this retrospective. I'm like, I think this one is the megaton bomb that's going to blow everything else out of water. So even when I'm watching some of these good ones in the past, like from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, I'm thinking, I think Casino has this one trumped big time. And I'm not wrong. This, to me, is not only the best James Bond movie, it's one of the top five best movies I've ever reviewed for now playing. I put it in the category with Silence of the Lambs, Alien. I mean, really, one of the great, great movies. I think this is the best spy movie I have ever seen. It is a tremendous work of art. If you only see one James Bond movie, make it Casino Royale 2006. Highest of recommends. Arnie. It's a strong recommend. But not over-the-top strong like Stewart's was right there. I can't say this is one of the top five films I've ever reviewed for now playing. There's a lot here, though. I will say this. I'm just going to start referring to Casino Royale as Vesper, because once you've seen it, it's the only Bond I want to watch. But yes, for even me, a non-Bond fan, this was able to bring me in and give me a very good time. I honestly wondered, after rewatching all these films, if Casino Royale, with its grim and gritty hard edge, could outdo some of the Brosnan stuff that I've enjoyed so much. The answer is yes. They did the perfect thing. The alchemy was perfect for the reboot here. 
I'm not as into it as you guys are. I don't get that into the romance scenes. I feel that the plot ended up being a little thin with the villain, and some of the action scenes left me cold because there was a lot of action in the beginning, and then they just continued the action. But it's good action. It just became a little sensory overload at times for me. But clearly the best Bond film we have reviewed so far in this series. I understand now why people are as excited for Skyfall as I was for Avengers. I get it. I don't feel it with you, but I understand it. We are recording this before Skyfall comes out. So, strong recommend and looking forward to seeing where it goes next because I've not seen Quantum of Solace. I never saw the sequel. Have to see how that goes. And I am right there with Stuart on this. I was thinking to myself, is this Jaws for me? I recommended Jaws as the strongest recommend I've ever given for a now-playing movie we've reviewed, and I am right up there. I don't think it beats Jaws for me in this, but it's right there for me. I love this movie, and listening to the three of us talk about this, all three of us are giving it strong recommends here, but we're giving it strong recommends, and we all got different things out of the movie, and that's the sign of a really good movie. I have seen this movie six, seven, eight times, and I learned something during this podcast that I hadn't realized before, and I'm dying to go back and watch it again. What I said about Jaws is as soon as I finish watching that movie, I want to watch it again. And there's only a handful of movies like that. This is one of them. And I don't always go back to this one. When I want to watch Bond, I pop in Goldeneye. I don't ever think about popping in Casino Royale because it's a hearty, wonderful meal. I just don't always need to go back to as much. But I'm telling you right now, I'm probably going to watch this again before I see Skyfall because I'm finding new things every time I watch it. And I just love movies like that. The editing, the directing, the acting, the staging. Just so much here to take in. Going in, after the first time I watched this, I thought this movie was what they do on Top Chef. They call it like deconstructing a, like a hamburger, say. Instead of giving you a hamburger on a plate, they give you a piece of bread that's different than a hamburger bun. And they give you, like, instead of ground beef, they give you ground veal and brie and fancy cheese. And you're supposed to put a little bit of it on your fork and put it in your mouth and it all comes together. And after the first time I saw this movie, that's what I thought they were doing. But after watching all these James Bond movies in succession for this podcast, during this view for this podcast of this movie, I realized that it adheres to the James Bond formula closer than I thought the first time I'd seen it. And it's wonderful how they go away from it, but they still adhere to it very loyally. They said a die another day. It was a love letter to fans with its 20th anniversary. This is a love letter to James Bond fans as well, because they could have gone off the deep end with the prequel thing and the reboot thing. But what they did was they gave us James Bond without giving us typical James Bond. And it's wonderful. Do I miss the gun barrel sequence? Do I miss the James Bond theme throughout the movie. Of course I do. I'm a James Bond fan, but how they use those aspects in this movie, brilliant. I can't recommend this higher enough. You should see this movie is a Bond film for the ages, and I am so glad they did it, and I'm so glad they did it this way. Strongest of recommends. Love this movie. Check it out again. And this is the last movie I believe I saw in the theater a second time. I don't go to the movies twice in the theater, folks. I actually went back to see this multiple times because I loved it so much back then as well. You can't get a higher endorsement than that go check this movie out it's fantastic i just can't believe these things i'm hearing about skyfall it's killing me they're saying it's even better <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine i feel like i'm getting baited into another dark knight situation where they're going to tell me dark knight rises is even better than dark knight and i'm going to be disappointed but the word on skyfall is they top this it's hard to imagine but we'll figure that out next friday we're still on our two a week schedule we're going to do quantum this coming tuesday 
So if you enjoy this movie, go to the forums and let us know. Please leave a review for us on iTunes. You can go to Facebook and Twitter. You can join the conversation in there. We always want to hear from you, the fans, and especially on this one, give us your thoughts. And also, don't forget our Platinum Donation 5th Anniversary DVD thank you gift is still available through the end of November. It's a great gift to give. It's a great gift to get if you can convince your gift givers to give before the 30th. You can find out all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com and that DVD has every review we've ever done. Higher quality audio on a lot of the regular releases as well as all of our donation series that people have asked us to re-release. Child's Play, Jaws, Aliens, Deep Blue Sea, the Spielberg Trilogy. (laughs) People are clamoring for that Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, dangling that one. They want to know how to make an omelet. They're going to have to break some eggs and get our fifth anniversary DVD. Now playing will return with Quantum of Solace. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. And I think that this guy can do Zorro. I really liked the Anthony Banderas Zorro. This guy can do Zorro. (laughs) 
And I really think this guy can do action. My computer's giving... Here, here's my... Here it is. <clears throat> James Bond... Hey, it's my turn, okay? <laughs> I finally get to have the computer problems. <laughs> That's what I was laughing about. <laughs> I tried not to laugh out loud, and I just... I failed. It was funny. And what's funny is it's not the computer I record on. It's the computer I have all my notes on. It is just being sluggish. It will not let me scroll this goddamn window to see my notes. That's why I keep pausing. I have all this shit written down. Apologies to the editor for all my flubs tonight, as my page still... I can't get to my... Give it a second. It's just slow, because it's an apple! I gotta tell you something. I have a confession to make, guys. I'm wearing that blue Speedo right now as I record this with you. <laughs> Are you rocking it as well as Daniel Craig is? I don't know. Admittedly, no, of course. How can I not? How can I? But <laughs> it doesn't count till you go to see Skyfall in that Speedo like I did with the Freddy suit. <laughs> <laughs> and if you donate $1,500 or more to now playing, I'll do just that, folks. <laughs> I will write that check. <laughs> <laughs> But you have to get into the theater. Now, Arnie, we've talked before about gambling scenes in movies, and you said you like these card scenes. I like them very much, too. I always enjoy a good gambling scene. But I remember you saying something about the magic card hands of movies. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but something about how you get tired of how everyone at the table seems to have a good hand all the time. Did you get annoyed with that in this movie? I think you might be thinking of somebody else. <laughs> no, I remember having this conversation with you. Um, like you talk about Maverick, for example, and how the ending of that movie pissed you off because everyone had this amazing hand. I have never seen Maverick. You are <laughs> thinking of somebody else. Wow, I am thinking of somebody else. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's bridge a different way into this conversation then. Okay. I thought it was a wonderful transition. It was. Just off with this conversation. Layout. We don't usually see heroes have their man sacks beaten to a pulp in a PG <laughs> movie. Man sack. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Mr. White gets the money to take to Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde. <laughs> Arnie, your joke was not lost on me. I laughed. <laughs> oh, I missed it. What, uh, what was the joke? He said Mr. White brought the money back to Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, jokes. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway. <laughs>